Amen. Let's pray one more time. Lord, as we come before your word, we come with expectation that you will be here and you will indeed join us and help us to see you better, especially as we live in these troubled times. Help us to know you better and therefore love you and trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. It won't come as a surprise to any of you, but the Supreme Court of the United States recently ruled in favor of homosexual marriage in the United States, making it now the law of the land that each of the 50 states recognize homosexual unions. A plethora of worrisome scenarios open for our culture and our world because of this. Will polygamy soon be a law? Will churches lose their nonprofit status? Will pastors be sent to concentration camps in Idaho? In reality, these worries pale in significance to the real issues. God's honor is being dragged through the mud. Families will be torn apart. A generation of children will be brought up with great confusion about their identity and the reality of what a family is supposed to be. Dozens of other harms to our societies that we don't even know yet because they haven't become apparent. My friends, the loss at the Supreme Court is far greater than our petty concerns about what may happen to you or me in losing our comfortable position in this society. More important than my comfort or yours is the fact that God's word is being trampled in the mire. Now some will turn me off at this point, but I'm not speaking to them. Tonight, I'm speaking to Christians. I'm speaking to you and me. I'm speaking because we, as far as the world is concerned, have much to fear. But I want to give you and me some reasons not to be afraid. I want to go over through the next several weeks and I want to give you and me hope from God's word that is more secure, more lasting than any constitution, more secure and more lasting than any five justices decision, more secure and more lasting even than the ground you are standing upon and the planet that it occupies. God's word will stand forever, my friends. And there is no court there is no president, there is no emperor, there is no one who is in a higher authority than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he remains on the throne no matter what happens in 1973 or what happens in 2015. God remains sovereign. And this medicine, this prescription that I want to give over these next few weeks, this is not an opiate, it's not some narcotic for you to turn off your mind and float in some never-never land. In fact, it's exactly the opposite of that. 
My reasons, my, my brothers and sisters, the reasons we have to fear become our marching orders. Not to huddle in our little Christian ghettos, but to go out and to be the kind of people that this nation needs because we have a general, we have a king who is marching in front of us and is still sovereign. I believe that the best medicine for your fears and mine in this culture and in no matter what the culture might do to us is exactly the same medicine that Habakkuk prescribed 600 years before Christ. You will overcome your fears by rejoicing. By rejoicing in light of whatever our culture can throw at us. Did you see that one coming? Did you think, oh, rejoicing will cure my fears? No. Have you been rehearsing the promises of God for you in Christ lately? Have you been preaching the good news to your heart? Haven't been knowing our Lord and Savior better and better and therefore loving him and trusting more? Perhaps you've been walking through the valley of the shadow of death. That is this life, but with biblical blinders on. My friends, I've, I've, I've quoted Benji so much now, it's become my phrase. There's grace for that. There is grace for that. For that. So allow me to remind you what this rejoicing is. Philippians 4 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord sometimes. Rejoice in the Lord when things are going your way. Rejoice in the Lord when we get good Supreme Court decisions. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness, let the fact that you actually let thoughts go through your mind instead of just consuming whatever is on television. Let your reasonably, reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. I need an amen for that. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a promise and it is a prescription for overcoming exactly the kind of fear that was so prevalent in Habakkuk's day among the godly and is unfortunately once again so prevalent among the godly today. But that's not all. Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. My friends, this is a command. And then Psalm 5, 1. But let all who take refuge in you, Lord, rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. This is an encouragement. This is a, an encouragement for you to go in the face of the culture and rejoice because the Lord is your protection. And reality comes in 1 Peter 4.13. But rejoice 
insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You're rejoicing now in spite of all that the culture can marshal against us is in light of the fact that one day and not too distant future we will be rejoicing in God's presence because the king of the universe will finally show himself as king of the universe undeniably to everyone. But the passage that really ties joy and rejoicing to fighting the fight of faith against fear in spite of anything and everything is right here in the book of Habakkuk. Found at the very end, chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines... The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, though there is no food available, is what he's saying here. Imagine dying a death of starvation that you know is coming because there is no food, and there is no opportunity of food to come. This is what Habakkuk says. Yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The cure to fighting the fear of the future that threatens our faith is rejoicing in the Lord. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes me my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. You and I can overcome our fears... By rejoicing. Now my friends. You have far more reason to rejoice in the Lord. Than to fear the government. And the brown shirts that they may send. I want to address two very specific questions. That every one of us is asking in our hearts right now. It's the same questions that Habakkuk gave 2700 years ago. And God gave him a very specific answer so that you, sitting right here in Santa Maria, California, can have your faith strengthened to face the culture. And the first is, God, aren't you paying attention? Don't you see what is going on? And we'll get to God's answer in a minute. But then... In light of God's answer, Habakkuk asked a second question or had a second complaint. God, you aren't really going to use those people, are you? Those evil, wicked people to bring justice upon your people for our sins? Now Habakkuk asked these questions and received such a profound answer, he recorded it so you and I can share it. Together. So tonight, I want to give a brief introduction. I want to water ski through the book of Habakkuk so that as we go over it in the next four weeks, as we plan to, we will benefit from its instruction to our heart. And we will learn over these next weeks to overcome our fears by rejoicing. Now, a little bit of history. In Habakkuk's lifetime, one of the greatest revivals in all of history occurred. 
The boy king Josiah ascended to the throne of Israel, bringing unprecedented justice and godly worship. Josiah's untimely death was then followed by one of the great reversals in history. By the time Habakkuk is writing, justice and godly worship had seemingly evaporated, dried up. And Habakkuk lived in times remarkably similar to yours and mine. He ascended the throne in 639 B.C. And his sweeping reform, some reforms were happening, but his sweeping reform happened in about 621 B.C. But he was killed in 609, 11 12 years after the reforms began, when he, without God's permission, went and tried to fight Pharaoh Necho. Necho himself was trying to assist the king of Syria, Assyria, who lost Nineveh in just a couple of years earlier, but was finally ultimately destroyed by the Babylonians in spite of Pharaoh's help. Then, in 605 B.C., Babylon completed its ascendancy to becoming the greatest nation on earth by humiliating Pharaoh at Carchemish. Pharaoh was put down in such a way that he never left Egypt again. But... Necho was alive and he continued to whisper into the ear of the king of Judah. And in 601, the king Jehoiachim, Jehoiakim rebelled against Babylon. This resulted in one embarrassing defeat for Jerusalem after another until finally in 586, Babylon completely sacked Jerusalem and began the, the years of captivity. And I, although it's after what we're talking about right now, in 538, they came back into the land, a small portion of them, and in a couple of different groups. And then finally in 516, they rebuilt the temple, the temple ending 70 years of exile and fulfilling the, the prophecy of Jeremiah. So, given this history, Habakkuk is preaching these sermons somewhere in between 609 and 605. It's, it's before, or excuse, um, it's after Josiah was killed, and it, but it's before Babylon completely took over everything and became the world power of the time. And what... Habakkuk needed to learn and what the people of Judah needed to hear is that they and we could overcome their fears by rejoicing. So here we are. Habakkuk evidently is complaining to God and he's saying, God, set things right. And perhaps what he envisioned was some triumphant political win and the good guys would come to power as they had only a few years previously. And specifically, what Habakkuk complains about is the fact that the law has been negated. The law has been perverted. It's instructive, and a side note, that when there is good law in the land, there is a solid human hope, although not ultimate hope, but there is hope when God is honored and men make good laws, 
then there is a measure of peace. But when there is not, the law becomes arbitrary. It becomes paralyzed, which is exactly where we find ourselves today. Hopefully over the next weeks, you'll see how similar our situations are. Because what we have done is we've turned laws into whatever one lawyer can say better and sweeter and nicer than another lawyer. And we bring ourselves to the point of codifying homosexual marriage. But you and me, we can rejoice in spite of our fears. Now I want you to hear me loud and clear. I want you to hear that Christians do not, ought not, biblically should not hate homosexuals. They are sinners, and they are sinners exactly like you and me. You may find yourself to be a homosexual, and I want you to know that we do not hate you. I do not hate you. Homosexuals are not our enemy. Ephesians 6.12 explains exactly who our enemy is. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemies are Satan and his helpers, the demons, and the world system that he has set up. And our armor is, Ephesians goes on to say, includes the word of God in prayer. That is how we fight, along with letting our reasonableness be known to all. And somehow, I don't pretend to understand all this, somehow homosexuality has become the sin of the hour. It has become that which everything is going to be measured against in this culture. You will be called upon to answer what you think about homosexuality. And you must answer in a God-honoring, biblical fashion. We must answer sinners of all sexual sins and all sins at all with two things. You are loved... And you are wrong. And when you examine your sin, the sin that you're hiding in your heart that you hope no one is able to see and you carefully conceal it and don't want people to know, when you're face to face with that sin, you are loved and you are wrong. This is the beginning of the gospel answer and no other. Christ died to save you in your sin and you, like every other human being, continue to sin with whatever flavor of sin you like and you must remember that Christ died for the sins of everyone who would ultimately trust him and you and I are his ambassadors so carry the right message. You are loved and you are wrong. And while you're doing that, you need to understand something else about Habakkuk's message. There will, not 
their might, not their, well, we can kind of look at social trends and we can kind of see these things happening. None of that. There will come reasons for you to be afraid. And we must answer those fears with the right biblical answer. Paul faced something similar when in the first... The, when he outlined Romans in two verses, he began his outline by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now why would Paul have said that if there was no reason for feeling shame? Why mention being ashamed at all if everyone around you applauds your commitment to biblical truth? Why mention you are not ashamed if you are put in the hottest spotlight and have 73 million Twitter followers because of your stand in godliness? The truth is, Paul had a million reasons to be quote-unquote ashamed as far as the culture around him was concerned. He was narrow-minded, he was intolerant, he was unlearned, and he was impossibly committed to some guy who got crucified in some backwater province that no one's ever even heard of in Rome. Hmm. Sounds like what the culture is saying about us, doesn't it? Yet, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? Why are you unashamed? For it is the power of God who remains on the sovereign throne of the universe. That no number of justices, not even nine of them, could take down. Of all the reasons Paul had to be ashamed, these are also reasons why you and I might be tempted to be afraid. But the same reason that Paul can stand up and say to Rome, I am not ashamed, you can stand up and say to Washington, D.C. or Sacramento, I am not afraid. Overcome your fears by rejoicing. Which begs a very important question, which I hope to answer over the next several weeks. How is it that this whole rejoicing thing is going to make it so that I'm not afraid of all that the culture can throw at me? Well, we learn three primary lessons. We're going to learn a lot more than that, but there's three primary lessons from the book of Habakkuk. Number one, God is sovereign. God is in control of history, not our political maneuvering or machinations. God is not surprised by any number of lawyers who believe that they can defy God and rewrite history. Fear not, my beloved, because number two, justice will prevail. God knows how to keep score better than you do. And God knows how to make sure that those scores are taken care of better than you do. And better than both of those is God knows those who take refuge in Him. He knows those who cling to Him for shelter. And as Habakkuk tells us in chapter 3, he will remember in his wrath, in his dispensing of that final judgment, mercy. My friends, 
the homosexuals that you know, just like the fornicators and the adulterers, just like the thieves and the cowards, just like the ones who support some weird political cause that you're against. Every single one of us needs mercy. Mercy is me not getting what I deserve. And my friends, your ability to stand on the promises of God and give that mercy to whomever it is that's spitting in your face. That is Christ in you. That is the Holy Spirit in you, working out through you. You being the effective, powerful ambassador for Christ that you need to be because Christ calls you to be and they need you to be because all they know are awful stereotypes of Christians some of which unfortunately have been far too often proven and because God is sovereign and because justice will prevail therefore you and I can rejoice in God's promises and you will find this several times in his powerful, pithy prophecy. Did you like that three Ps? Never mind. I worked hard on that. So I want to give you a quick water ski through the book. Hang with me here. If you don't get it, it's in your notes. And we'll be going over it the next several weeks. In verses 1 through 4, chapter 1, 1 through 4, Habakkuk gives his first complaint. And he says, God, your people are out of hand. I think it's instructive that Habakkuk starts with God's people, Israel, national Israel, okay, I'll, I'll grant you it's not spiritual Israel, but national Israel is completely out of hand. And he is exactly right. God never denies that he's right in this. In fact, implicitly, he agrees with them. In verses 5 to 11, God responds to Habakkuk's first complaint and says, don't worry, they'll be judged. And in verse 12 through 2-1, in his second complaint, Habakkuk is appalled into submission. He, he, he doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know what to do because he looks at the people that God just said were going to bring his judgment against God's people. And he says, these guys... They're awful, God. Have you seen them? They're wicked. But, chapter 2, verse 1, we're going to find out, turns out to be a very important verse in this book. He is appalled at God's chosen instrument of judgment. But it's what happens to him through that just utter disbelief in what God just says and he submits and he says I will wait for God's answer he didn't wait long in 2 1 through 5 because of Habakkuk's submissive waiting God gives two answers to Habakkuk's complaint along with an urgent and very beautiful poetic command to make this answer known the first answer is the evil one and in this case he defines the evil one as one who is proud. 
Now, I'm not saying that that's the definition of all evil. I'm not saying that. But that's the example that God uses here in 2.4. The proud one will be judged. And the righteous one, he is defining here as the one who trusts. The righteous one, the trusting one, will live. And then he expounds upon that in chapter 2, uh, chapter 2, 6 through 20, and it says, Yahweh will judge the proud. Yahweh speaks through Habakkuk with clear pronouncements of judgments against the various expressions of the evil, the prideful people, that includes both the direct description of the invading Chaldean army that will come first in 601, and then there's another one in the 90s, and then there's the final one in 586. He describes that, but he also describes what is coming for those who live likewise throughout history. This is an important note, and we'll come back to this. Habakkuk is speaking in a very specific time and place, and yet his prophecy is timeless. You and I don't need to worry about a resurrected Chaldean army coming and invading Santa Maria. That's not the point of Habakkuk. That invading army already came. That prophecy is fulfilled. You don't have to worry about that. But you may have some anti-Christians governing you for a while. Boy, what would it be like to live in that kind of country? You may have some people who are vehemently against Judeo-Christian values and control of your country for a while. Hmm. But then you get to the most beautiful psalm in the Bible. One of them. This, this is definitely one of the top. And in Habakkuk 3, 1 through 16, he gives his first response that corresponds to God's revelation of judgment against the proud. And how he words it is he gives a rehearsal of the history of God responding to evil in Israel's past. And what he says in, his, in essence is Okay, God, I will wait. And then in, in one of the most beautiful passages ever, anywhere, 17 to 19, Habakkuk's second response corresponds to God's revelation that the righteous one is the trusting one. And in one of the greatest expressions of trust found anywhere in all of literature, he goes on and it's more than simply an expression of trust. It's a confession of joy. I mean, it's one thing to say that a prison camp will last a number of years and I just got to gut it out. But it's another one that says, yes, prison camp. Woohoo! You're cutting off all the things that have been hiding you from me, God. And I rejoice in that. My friends, the way for you and me to overcome our fear is to rejoice because whatever God sends in your path is going to be for your good. Let me say that again. Whatever might come in your path will ultimately be for your good. Because Paul said that these light and momentary afflictions, prison camps in Idaho, these losing your nonprofit status, your children suffering, these light 
and momentary afflictions are what? They're making for us this unbelievable weight of glory. And the very ones who oppress you and your children, the very ones who fight against all that God stands for, they stand in front of their great helicopters and their giant buildings made in their name and they have lights that go for miles. They will be as nothing compared to those who stand and rejoice knowing that all this is temporary. Your bank accounts are going to be emptied anyways. Whether it's because you die in your bed in your sleep or whether it's because you die in a concentration camp, it's going to all be gone. So why worry about how it goes? Instead, rejoice and use those resources for his glory instead of my comfort. I will trust, Habakkuk says. Now in light of this, what, what, seriously, thinking about this, what do we do in light of SCOTUS and all of the things that are going on? We're either going to allow fear to dominate our attitudes and actions. That is an option. You, you can run yourself into an asylum because you've just gone crazy because you can't handle your fear. You might lose sleep. You might actually make things worse by watching the news. Or you can look back in the history of God's people and, and find resources, find ideas of how to fight. And so I, I just want to pull out two Two competing ideas that have happened in the history of the church, broadly speaking. And what is it that people who love the Lord do in light of awful situations? In about 500 AD, a man named Benedict of Nursia was a young nobleman in Rome. And he was about 20. They don't really know exactly how old he was. And he decided that he was disenchanted with being a young Roman nobleman. And so he left the city and he became a monk on his own. He kind of became one of those solitary guys in the mountains east of Rome. And then finally as life went on, he went down south in Italy and he, he began to be an abbot of this monastery. And he wrote his famous rule of St. Benedict. Now there is much to admire in Benedict. This is not an anti-Catholic sermon, okay? Benedict outlined what life should look like for those who have taken vows and spend their days in equal portions of prayer, rest, and work. In fact, his, his motto, the thing that he was most known for saying was ora et labora, prayer and work. That should be the main components of the monk's life. And he became known as the father of Western monasticism. Now, unfortunately, following Benedict's rule presupposes that you leave society. You exit everyone else. 
And I'm not here to argue against the fact that monasticism did nothing for Western Europe. In fact, if you really wanted to get into it, monasticism did quite a bit for us, but that's not the point today. The point is he chose to exit society. And there are Christians who do that today. They go get on a ranch and get off the grid and, and that's what they do. Boy, let me tell you, that would suit my personality very well. I, I, I could do that. I'm convinced. And leave the internet. But you know what? I decided years ago that that's not my answer. As much as I would love to live in a town of 2,000 people, I'm here for a short time to serve God's people. And right now, that's Santa Maria, California. Right now, that's living in the city, preaching God's word. There is another option. Uh, Marvin Olansky is the editor of World Magazine. And by the way, World Magazine is something that both Pastor Benji and I subscribe to. And it is an excellent source for you to get commentary on what is going on in our culture. I highly recommend you pay the $39 a year or whatever it is. If you can afford that, I get the online version. Pastor Benji gets the magazine version. I don't know how much his costs. I don't know if it's more or not. But anyways... Um, World Magazine, worldmag.com. Recently, he wrote a series of articles arguing for not the Benedict option, but the Daniel option. Daniel, the prophet, was what, of what we would call noble birth. But his opportunity to live as a Jewish noble was taken from him in 586 when Babylon finally got tired of messing around with Zedekiah and brought everybody to Babylon. Fortunately, whether he knew Jeremiah's prophecy or not, I think he probably did, but whether or not he did, he followed Jeremiah's command that the Lord ordered him in Jeremiah 27 29, 4 through 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts to you in Santa Maria, California, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city of the United States of America where you have been sent into exile and pray to the Lord on his behalf for in, in its welfare you will find your welfare. Man, going back to toddlerhood in my house has been very difficult. But I'll tell you what's harder than holding a 22-pound baby. It's thinking in the next few years, the government might take away my right to be homeschoolers. It's thinking that in the next few years, my daughter might be subjected to all kinds of awful things going to happen. And what am I going to do? This little girl already has my heart. I am subjecting myself to the probability of having my heart smashed 
because of all the evil that is going on in this world. But what am I to do in light of this? What am I to do in light of what Jeremiah told the exiles in Babylon? If I had refused to go to China to get this little girl, she would have still suffered. But she would have suffered apart from the opportunity of me giving her that privilege, that grace of hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if she's going to be saved or not. I pray fervently. And my boys and I pray fervently every day that she will be saved, that she will be one among one of the elect. And I am not saying you should adopt because that is a crazy thing to do. Let me tell you, I know. But here's what you are to do. You are to pray to the Lord on the city's behalf. Evil Babylon. You are to pray on their behalf. And you are to let your reasonableness be known to all so that they see that Christians are not morons. But we are people who love our culture and who want to do what is best. And if they spit in our face and chop off our heads, so be it. So be it. And joyfully go to the guillotine because you will know that your Savior has led you there. Daniel, in his life, eventually became the prime minister of the most powerful nation on earth at the time. But not because he left town to become a monk. Daniel became prime minister because while seeking the Lord in all of his attitudes and actions, he also worked hard to be the very best servant possible, even when his work included becoming learned in the Persian mythology and religion. Now, I expect my children to understand Darwinianism and postmodern thought, not because I want them to, you know, have this cultural experience. No, hardly. We're not producing what would be called good culture now anyways. But because by working hard with the truth, seeking the Lord in all of their attitudes and actions, and working hard to understand the culture about them, will they be able to live the best lives possible to glorify the Lord who deserves their best. And whether my sons or my daughter become prime minister or not will be completely up to the Lord. But even if they're scrubbing toilets, I want them to scrub toilets knowing that the Lord put them there and gave them that job so that they can rejoice and overcome all the fears that we might have. This kind of faithful living, this kind of trusting the promises for you, of God for you in Christ is exactly what Habakkuk elicits in us. This kind of living both begets joy, it makes us joyful, and then this joy begets more faithful living because there isn't time to fear. And because while we're rejoicing in God, we're willing to do whatever it is he's calling us to do. Habakkuk calls you and me to trust the good, sovereign judge who is better than bumper crops and dirty barns. 
But you will not find this kind of culture, in this culture, this kind of faith. You will only find it in the pages of God's word and in the history of godly people who have trusted him before us. You will only find it when you're searching for him and then he will enable you to find it right here. He will enable you to overcome your fears by rejoicing. And Lord, we submit to you that this is a scary world. Lord, we submit to you that the reason we're even talking about fears is because there is much to fear. We submit to you, Lord Jesus, knowing that we do not always rejoice. Oh God, I confess my own heart even right now. And I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to work in me and through me and through my brothers and sisters before me and all around the world that your people would awaken and rejoice. And because we rejoice, we will go through whatever it is you send us knowing that whatever you send us is for our good and for your glory and for the growth of your kingdom. Bless us today, Jesus, so that we may be a blessing. Amen.